Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In the never-ending discussion about the best Beatles album, there's been a dark horse that some people have been putting at the top of their list in recent years. A Hard Day's Night, released on the 10th of July 1964, as the third Beatles album. 30 minutes long, and the only Beatles album made up entirely of Lennon and McCartney songs, with no Ringo tune. It is the album and not the film that we are going to talk about today. But they are hard to separate because one kind of exists without without the other. It can't really happen, can it, Stephen? It can't. It can't. And, you know, it, it, it really starts with the film and leads into the album. Um, is it their best album? I, I was talking to somebody uh, on Twitter and they said it does what it does better than Abbey Road does what it does. Hmm. I pondered that and, and <laughs> that was from, from, I, I kind of thought, yeah, I, I kind of see what, see what they mean. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, a summation of where they are and it's a launching pad for, uh, the peak Beatlemania. I think the thing that does set it apart is the fact that it's all Lennon and McCartney originals. And, yeah. you know, you look at that first batch of albums, let's say pre-Rubber Soul, it's the only one of those albums that's all Lennon and McCartney. And, you know, that's kind of audacious and that sets it apart um, because I think there's a feeling amongst fans that the two subsequent albums, you know, Beatles for Sale and Help, it's like, oh, they shouldn't have cover versions on them. Yeah, there's a couple of good podcasts on Beatles for Sale and Help albums, and uh, yeah, I think people uh, should check those out. <laughs> I think, I think the, I think, I think that's right. The the idea that both of those albums are a little bit of a step back, uh, simply because they're reverting back to rock and roll covers. Um, this is the album I think that signaled to the wider world and probably the sort of more serious music critics that uh, they were capable of more than just writing catchy singles you know you you've, you've got a greater depth to the lyrics coming in you you've got uh you know use of the studio techniques coming in um plus as you say they're they're writing all the material yeah and it, it really you know maybe that mightn't have been totally apparent in july 1964 when it came out but it's certainly very apparent when you kind of look at the arc of their album releases but when we get to this point of which came first the album or the film it's you know, you say the film, but the film happened because somebody wanted an album. What what exactly is the the order of events? 
Well, what happens here is that uh, United Artists, this is in October 63, United Artists decide they would like to get in on the Beatles action. Um, and primarily what they're interested in is a soundtrack album. You know, the film, they're not looking to make a great artistic statement. They're not uh, thinking the film is going to have a long life or going to make them the money. The money is going to come off the soundtrack album. The interesting thing is that this goes back to October 63. So at a time when the Beatles really are not making any impact, haven't made any impact uh, in the States. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's an, an American push that's trying to get this made. Yeah. And, you know, in, in British rock and roll at the time, there were, there was an indigenous kind of movie scene, you know, you've your Cliff Richard films, for instance. So it's not yes, beyond the realm of Bongo. Yes. Which uh, keeps popping up on late night TV. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's not unimaginable that, uh, you know, one of these British uh, movie companies who were very prevalent at the time could have knocked off a, a Beatles film. But the, you know, the preemptive move is coming from, as you say, United Artists, which is based in America. And their notion is to knock off something kind of cheap and exploitative in order to undercut the album rights and kind of get the album rights, on, get an album onto United Artists. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yes, they're not interested in making great art here. Um, it's just going to be another cheap exploitation movie, get the album out. Um, it must have appealed to Epstein mm. because of the American connection. You know, they're still at this stage, they're trying to break America. Capital aren't releasing the singles. We've touched on this uh, uh, touched on this in previous episodes. So you, you can see this as part of Epstein's strategy. Um, there's an American film company comes knocking at the door. Uh, you know, we, we can perhaps cover in another episode Epstein's negotiations around the film and that sort of thing. And But um, he, I think, does see this as part of his armory in trying to get capital on board and trying to break America. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of, you know, you dance to with whoever asks you. And at that back end of 63, all he wants to get is, you know, uh, some kind of foothold in America and the promise of an album. Because, you know, the the the, the labels that had taken the, you know, once Capital had first refusal, the, the labels that have been putting out Beatles singles, they weren't the biggest labels uh, in the world. No. And here's United Artists saying, yeah, we don't just want a single, we want an album. And But they weren't in the market for making a movie, the Beatles themselves. They didn't really want to make a movie. No, I think I, th I think there was a certain hesitancy on their part. You know, they, they knew they weren't actors. This wasn't playing to their strengths. Um, their sense was, you know, we're doing what we're doing and we're doing it very well and it's being successful. Why do we need to sort of stick our head above the parapet and you know, potentially leave ourselves open to criticism. They they would have been very conscious, I suppose, of the Elvis mm. pattern of, of that diminishing return and the undermining of uh, his his credibility. Um, and that sort of deal is hammered out in October '63. And as we've talked on the Ed Sullivan episode, that you know Brian kind of uses it as leverage to you know open yes. more doors in America. Um, but you know, you start thinking about timeline. You know. The, the album that comes out at the end of 63 is with the Beatles. And that's an album that comes together quite quickly. And, and so the Beatles obviously know at that point, oh, our next job is we've got a movie full of songs to do. That must be yes. something that's put to them in October, November uh, 63. We don't really know specifically the date when they found out they'd be making a movie, but it must be around that time. It, it, must, be, it must be just as, uh, maybe just before, uh, with the Beatles comes out, you know, if they were talking October, November, it's November 
uh, 22nd is when uh, With the Beatles comes out. So by that stage, they know uh, that there's going to be another single required. There's going to be a, a, a sort of a concert tour that they're doing in, in France. Plus, immediately following that up, they're going to have to record a soundtrack. Plus, they're going to have to go straight into filming. Uh, the movie, and in the interim, they're going to have to find, uh, you know, uh, get the script written. Yeah. Um, they were very clear. They, they I, I, there's an interview where I think it's John is saying, you know, we we did not want this just to be us wandering around from one TV studio to another, saying hello to Al McCogan or uh, <laughs> you know Helen Shapiro and these very kind of stilted setup. You know, they knew yeah. they didn't want that. Um, and the other angle of this that I've all wondered about is at what point did Parlophone. Uh, were they told as well that, okay, you know, the album that comes out following with the Beatles, you know, if we're on two albums a year, as was their original deal, that album number three, the first half of 64 album was going to be a soundtrack. Uh, like you could argue they, they could have had a problem with that because they, they could have said, well, why would we advertise a film that we've got no financial, um, you know, uh, stake in? Well, they wouldn't have had a stake in the film, but I suppose they know by this stage the album is going to sell. Yeah. Um, so e- even if the film is a flop, uh, Parlophone have the album in the UK. Uh, yeah. So they're going to make money off the back of the album. And I say where we started from is United Artists are coming from the point of view is that it's the album that's going to make the money, uh, not the film. Yeah. So, you know, we will do a podcast someday about, uh, that focuses on the film itself, but we want to look at the album. And as we said, it's 13, not 14 songs, all original Lennon and McCartney tracks, which is impressive. And, you know, there was obviously part of the demand or part of the contract or the, the demand from UA was that the original songs would all be Lennon and McCartney originals. Um, yes, Yes. So that would have been a driver for that. But even still, they could have done, you know, one side of Lennon and McCartney originals for the film and then just done a B side of uh, uh, covers and bits and pieces. Yeah. 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 Um, So let's look at the timeline of recording the album. So, you know, the Beatles are having a a busy uh, enough time as things are exploding around them at the end of 63 and the start of 64. But even though they're busy, they also have you know, two kind of, what you might say, static commitments. They spend Christmas in London doing the first Beatles Christmas show. Yeah. Uh, and then after uh, Christmas, uh, you know, they, they have one performance on uh, Sunday night at the London Palladium on January the 12th, which is perhaps not really as remembered as the 1963 performance. No, um, this is a sort of big cabaret family gather around the television moment um, on Sunday night. You know, there's the big variety show. Um, so, I mean, it's quite a, quite a thing, uh, that sort of famously have this revolving carousel mm-hmm. at the end when all the acts join, I think famously the stones then refused to jump <laughs> onto the revolving the carousel when, when they were, do- they were doing it. Um, but the Beatles, are playing, playing, the, stones. The, 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 uh, Beatles are playing the game. Um, so they go on Sunday at the Palladium, curiously, their fee has quadrupled, to £1,000 from when they were on it just four months or three months earlier. And the other interesting fact about that performance is uh, the comedian Dave Allen was on the bill and he next shared a bill with John Lennon in 1975 on the salute to Lou Grade. Oh, the Lou Grade. Yeah, Yeah, so Dave Allen was there as well. Uh, But then what they spend the next couple of weeks doing is in France. They have a warm-up gig in Versailles and then from January the 16th, uh, 1964 to February the 4th, uh, 1964, they are... 
playing their res uh, residency at the Olympia Theatre in Paris. And this is famously right at the start of that residency is where they get the news that I want to hold your hand is number one in America. And they're you have those pictures of them jumping up and down with with pillows and all the rest. And, you know, it's it's a bit of an eye of the storm kind of situation. They've got this three-week residency in this one city. They're not in the van going up and down a freezing cold UK. And they're kind of sitting on the knowledge for the three weeks that they are selling. They're the biggest selling act in Capitol Records history in the States. Yes. I mean, one of the things that uh, is interesting about this this entire enterprise is how the songs are written and where the songs are written. Hmm. So, um, you know, up to this point, as you say, they're, they were either they were writing songs in Paul's front room or they're in hotel rooms doing this eyeball to eyeball uh, notion or on a bus totaling up, uh, I was going to say the motorway, but there weren't even any motorways. <laughs> um, but here... That they have, they're working very much to a deadline. They're also working to a script, if you like, so that, that on occasion throughout this period, they will be told, "We need a song for this, or we need a song mm. for that." You know, we need a fast song, we need a slow song. Um, so they're they're writing as they're touring, as they're they're in America, as they're in Paris, even when they're on holiday, um, they're they're writing over this period to to a deadline. Um, yeah, so they have kind of three. You know, this, 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 we kind of figure there's about three main areas where they're writing songs in that, you know, first half of 63, which is, you know, while they are in Paris, while they are in New York City, and some of the later songs come out in May while they are on holidays. Because uh, yeah. the, the breadth of the recording for the Hard Day's Night album, um, you know, the, the, the earliest recording is on January the 29th, and uh, the last recording is on June the 1st, although January the 29th, as we'll discuss in a second, isn't uh, particularly in-depth. It's really the end of February when most of the songs get recorded. Um, but they are on this uh, residency in Paris, as we said, from January 16th to February the 4th. Um, they have, they're, they're earmarked to go into the studio in Paris, which outside of their Hamburg days is their only kind of uh, non-UK recording session, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's right. So they're due to um, go in on the January the 29th. Now, what I find interesting is the night before, January the 28th, um, John and George, they take a quick jolly over to London. And uh, for the first time, they meet Phil Spector. That was a, <sighs> a, that was, a momentous day. A momentous day. More, more pleasingly, they met Ronnie Spector as well, who's someone who still uh, speaks I, I, very I, fondly of, uh, of the Beatles. I was going to say, I would, I, I would guess most of uh, John and George were probably more excited to meet Ronnie Spector than Phil Spector. Yes. And, uh, and, and why wouldn't they? She's, uh, she's fantastic. Uh, she played Dublin uh, about two years ago and she was full of stories of the Beatles and all sorts of things. She's, she's just yeah. an yeah. absolute treasure. Um, but on January the 29th, in the midst of this Paris um, residency, uh, they are summoned to the studio. And there's initially a bit of a Beatles strike because they don't want to go there for the primary reason that they're supposed to go there. Yes, they're supposed to be recording uh, German versions of uh, um, I Want to Hold Your Hand and, and She Loves You. And they really don't want to do this. And uh, I think we touched on this in the I Want to Hold Your Hand episode way back mm. in season, whatever that was, <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, they, they George Martin has to sort of almost physically drag them to the studio. Um, so they get those two songs out of the way and they have, you know, they have an hour left. And Beatles being Beatles, what do you do when there's an hour left? You try and uh, you try and use it basically. So it's at this um, 
free time at the end of a session in Paris that they trot out uh, Can't Buy Me Love, which is really a Paul number. It is. It is. Uh, uh, I mean, John, um, at one point, he was sort of saying, well, it was John and Paul wrote that, but mainly Paul. But by 1980, he's saying, no, that's that's Paul completely. Maybe he had something to do with the chorus. Um, so, yeah, this is this is absolutely a Paul song. Um, and what other songs do they have in the tank? Because what we'll notice throughout all of this period is it, it's not like there's a deep well that they are pulling out songs from. There are songs that are being written right they're being pinned right to their collar to try and get stuff in studio and we start to see as we roll this out how songs are coming in and they're about 70 percent formed and they're really just being yeah. finalized and written on the spot so um there's one other song in the tank at this point isn't there is this paul's uh fabulous creation one and one is two uh, a missing Beatles gem, Stephen, is it? It's a it's a missing Beatles classic. Yes, <laughs> this is a, this is odd. Um, so, you have you heard the demo of uh, One and One Is Two? Can't say I have. No, no, I haven't. You're not missing. You're not missing much. Um, just to give you a, give you an idea of just how good this song is, uh, it was turned down by Billy J. Kramer. <laughs> Uh, they, they offered it to him and uh, supposedly John said that uh, if, if Kramer recorded the song uh, that would be the end of his career um, and uh, in 1980 John was saying that's another of Paul's bad attempts at writing a song so then it was turned down by Kramer they offered it to the foremost who already they were sort of a Liverpool close harmony group um, they recorded a couple of uh, uh, Beatles songs uh, by that stage, Hello Little Girl being one of them. Um, they turned it down as well. Wow. Um, when the foremost Paul, turn you down. When the foremost turn you down. So uh, Brian O'Hara, who was their lead guitarist, said he remembers. So, you know, Paul came into the studio and he played bass, but there just wasn't any meat in the song. So Paul is really, you know, Paul's really pushing this. Um, so then uh, it made its way to a group I'm sure you'll have heard of, uh, The Strangers with Mike Shannon. Oh, Mike no. Shannon and The Strangers. No. Yes. No, Ma- oh, sorry. Yeah, Mike <laughs> Shannon. No. Again, um, this is an all music review says uh, they had the honor or misfortune of covering the most obscure Lennon McCartney song that was given away uh, in the 60s and not recorded by the Beatles. So it doesn't seem to have charted anywhere that I can find. Maybe somebody can correct yeah. us on that. Um, there, there have been a couple of reissues, one in Sweden. They were big in Sweden. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, even in 1980, John is still remembering it as Paul's bad attempt at writing a song, as you say. What's, never never forgive, never forget. You well, know? he's in mind like a steel trap. But, you know, there's, 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 there's kind of a recurring thing at the end of 64, I think, or at the end of 63 into 64, where... Paul is still trying to unlock what songwriting is. And he's he's on this kind of seesaw of writing horrifically generic stuff, but then yeah. very quickly realizing what works. Well, the thing is, the thing is that he's still pushing this song. That's the interesting thing to me as well. So it's it's there's a sense at this time, and clearly Paul has bought into this, that hmm. that that, you know, if it's a Lennon or McCartney song, yeah. it's going to be great or at least if it's not great at least it's going to sell and this this seems to be the one that sort of bucks that trend uh you can you can pick it up there's a good compilation called the songs lennon and mccartney gave away um it's about 20 songs the beatles didn't record but um yeah you know so on the one hand he's writing this and on the other hand he just casually knocks off camp i mean 
Yeah, but he he does that. Like, you know, he hangs on to songs like, you know, Hope for the Future or something like that and says, here we go, best song ever. Really? This is, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's a wonder they didn't try and do a, you know, a, something with Jeff Lynne in 95 with it, you know, they didn't try and re- resurrect one and one as two. There's still, there's still time. There there's is still, still time. time. Get Jeff on the phone. Um, but what they do, you know, the other song that Paul has, of course, is, as we said, Can't Buy Me Love. And he's sort of, describes it in later years as saying, you know, he's trying to write a, you know, bluesy mode song, you know, all about material possessions, you know, they can't buy what I want. And he sort of describes it as a very hooky song um, later on. Um, And they they do about, uh, I think, four takes in Paris. Uh, One of them is on Anthology One. And it's, it's there, but it's not quite there. It still doesn't have kind of hit single sprinkle on it. No, you can you, you you can feel him sort of moving towards the finished version, and George George Martin has a lot to do with this because he's he's arranging it and he's sort of saying, well, you know, you should move the chorus and you should do this and you should do that, and it's a very collaborative effort. And this, uh, I think, sees the 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 start of the move towards um, working things out in the studio. Mm. Um, so the first two albums, they're they're pretty much coming and saying, look. We, we hear the songs uh, and, and they're sort of minor adjustments, but we'll see across the course of Hard Day's Night um, that there's much more arranging going on. So they're coming to the studio with ideas and then they're, they're tinkering with them. It is curious that, you know, they're based in, in um, Paris for three weeks. And I know they're busy and they're working, but that they didn't think of squeezing in any other studio time, uh, you know, in some of their downtime. But, you know, they, they were obviously writing and collecting experiences but the big thing that happens next is what we've talked about in our other episodes that they they go to america so they wrap up their uh, paris engagement on february the 4th and february the 7th to the 21st is uh, the big u.s invasion which we talked about in our ed sullivan episode um, and then they come back uh, to london they have one more television appearance on big night out which is uh, on february the 23rd so they're on the UK TV live while a pre-record third appearance on Ed Sullivan is going out in the UK. Um, and then it's back into the studio and it's this glut of work at the end of uh, February 64 because they've got a few days before the filming starts. This is where they put up the pressure to themselves and churn out an incredible collection of songs. Yes, there's a run here over a sort of five, six day period, which is really phenomenal. Uh, you, you know, when you think about it, that when you think that they're they're turning out songs for an album that people are saying, no, nah, you know, this is this could be their best album ever. This is certainly in the top kind of maybe three albums they ever produced, and yet it's being recorded under intense pressure. Yeah, which is something that we see again and again up to you know um, you know how few sessions it took to to get Rubber Soul on tape. So they get back into the studio. They are due to begin filming on March the 2nd, 1964. So they go into the studio on February the 25th, which is also George's birthday, um, which is nice. And um, not taking a day off. Uh, And the first thing they do is they get to work on Can't Buy Me Love. Because at this point, you know, they need a single. And Can't Buy Me Love is the single. The thing that's a bit uncertain, we might come back to this later on, is whether Can't Buy Me Love from the get-go was supposed to be in the film or not. Do we yes, know? My, my sense is that it wasn't intended to be in the film. It does um, seem the, to be, yeah, because they were earmarking other songs potentially for the Can't yeah. Buy Me Love sequence. So yes. um, it's not a given at this point that Can't Buy Me Love is necessarily going to be a, uh, um, uh, you know, in the movie. It, you know, they need, 
there's always a need for the next single in the, in the Beatle universe. Um, so it takes a little while for, as you say, there's a bit of organization by uh, uh, George Martin and arranging to try and get the initial range of overdubs done to, to, to finish off Can't Buy Me Love. There's a couple of question marks that hang over some aspects of Can't Buy Me Love, isn't this, there? Yes, this is, a, this, is a, this is a really kind of fascinating little song um, if you start to deconstruct it. So the first thing is the guitar solo. Mm. Um, so if, if you listen to the guitar solo, it, it's, it's odd. And uh, well, look, we had this take four uh, done in, in uh, Paris. We brought that back. We then started to overdub a new guitar so- solo, but you can still hear the original guitar solo underneath. So he's, he's quite clear that uh, he's sort of playing over uh, the original guitar solo and they hadn't quite erased it, but it's a very striking uh, sound they get. Yeah. Um, and he seems to be suggesting this is obviously obviously by accident that it comes up with that. But I, I always think the guitar solo there, the sound of the, the guitar solo is one of the most striking things about the song. Um, and Paul does some vocal double tracking and uh, Ringo's kind of adding some symbols on top. But there is this slight technical, uh, as you say, like a technical discrepancy between what I, the tapes that Abbey Road get back from, from Paris. Yeah. Um, the mixing session, if we jump forward to that for a second, that, that happens later in March without the Beatles there. And there's another kind of interesting so this, fact. This is, so this is, this is, the, this is your uh, pub quiz question, which is uh, <laughs> who plays the drums on uh, Can't Buy Me Love? And you think, well, it's oh, obviously Ringo Starr, Stephen. He was the drummer in the Beatles. obviously Ringo because he was there. So um, uh, Mark Lewis mentions this in his sessions book and, and they, they desc- he, he describes a sort of a, a wrinkle in the tape. Um, so there's a little bit of a dropout there and that they need to fix. But of course, the Beatles aren't available. They're, they're sort of off touring and uh, uh, so uh, filming. So they need to fix this. So um, Jeff Emmerich's book clarifies this. Lewison talks about you know another drummer, um, but uh, Jeff Emmerich's book uh, shed some light on that. And he describes that George Martin and uh, Norman Smith decided that uh, took it upon themselves to just fix it. So Norman Smith goes down into the studio and overdubs a drum part um, to fix this uh, kind of dropout in sound caused by a wrinkle in the, in the tape. And uh, he said, Emmerich suggests even possibly the Beatles don't notice or don't know that this, know uh, happened. this ever happened. So, so, this so is that's your time. It's only a little tiny, little yeah. tiny bit in the middle where um, I say there's been some kind of a crease or something mm-hmm. in the tape that has caused this dropout. And, you know, they're working on magnetic tape uh, yes. and they just fix it very, very discreetly. Uh, fix yeah. it. But that's, that's, the, uh, that's the pub quiz question, the tiebreak question. If I'm ever hosting a quiz, that will be the question. So, that, so Norman Smith is, is on that. So, yeah, nowadays you just copy and paste yeah. a little bit of drums from one bit to the other. So um, yeah. you're saying that Norman Smith, uh, that when he eventually got to number one, that was his second number one that he'd been on? Is that right? That was his second number one. That was his second number one. <laughs> no, people, need to, <laughs> people need to know that. Um, if, if, if we just kind of stay on Can't Buy Me Love for a second, you know, it's it's a song obviously that, you know, gets earmarked as the next single and you know, that there's a myriad of versions of Can't Buy Me Love out there. It's a song that yeah. sticks with them for a, uh, for a while and it's, you know, it's, it's the first new Beatles single to come out after they've conquered America. So it does have a, 
you know, all eyes are on it. Uh, and it slips into their their live set. They play it, don't they, at the Hollywood Bowl and, uh, you know, on a myriad. There's like a total commercial television oh, blitz of yes, performances. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, this 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 becomes a, a, a staple uh, of their live show. And as you say, Paul still plays it from time to time. And uh, I saw him play it in 1989. Um and in my head, this is the first time I saw a Beatle play a Beatles song. But when I look at the set list, what does it there say? were at least two or two or three others. It was the 13th song that he played in that set. And prior to that, he played Got to Get You Into My Life and Full on the Hill. But the one that sticks with me as as being, oh, my God, that's a Beatle, yeah. uh, was Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. I mean, that's the New World Tour after Flowers in the Dirt in 89. So you're yeah. probably dazzled by the figure of eight opening track, which is... What a... <laughs> what a... <laughs> What I remember is there was a fantastic uh, Dick Lester directed uh, yeah. kind of kind of movie uh, montage, you know, maybe 30, 40 minute movie that we got to see. And you sort of saw all these great uh, clips and performances. And in the opening track, when Paul hit the stage was figure of eight. And it was really anticlimactic after, yeah. uh, you know, it being dazzled by the this, this kind of movie highlights. Um, that was bad. That was bad. Uh, <laughs> bad planning. It's uh, yeah. It was. An, it was not. I mean, I'm quite fond of the figure of eight the track, but it's a, yeah. It's not concert opener. It's not exactly one that's. It's not get a concert people, opener. No. Uh, people up on their feet. And the other, uh, but the other good version of uh, "Can't Buy Me Love" is uh, one that we touched upon briefly in the Ed Sullivan episode. Is you know he he revisits it um, in the Ed Sullivan Theatre at the start of '93. He has this countryfied. Uh, redo of it so obviously it's a it's a song that yes. he wrote it's a song that he's fond of and uh you know it's a song that's very important but again they're working fast it's this uh, february the 25th they actually have uh, four songs that they're working on that day and can't buy me love is just the start of a very busy day and when every single has an a side a single also needs a b side so you take a break to flip over your single so we shall take a break right now and we'll talk to you about the b side after this End of part one. Intermission. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the B-side of Can't Buy Me Love is You Can't Do That. And that is the next song that they tackle on February uh, the 25th. Uh, and this is originally tagged as also being for the film. They have this down to be done. Yes, yes. This is this is very much a film song, uh, but then it was cut uh, at the last minute. And, you know, they, it was filmed, uh, there's a sequence, but uh, it's, it's a shame. I, I love it. This is a great song. This is an absolutely fantastic song. This is an absolutely fantastic song. And, uh, you know, in, in the resulting album, it's kind of tucked away at the end. But it's, it's, it's a track that, uh, particularly in the mono version, it just yes. kicks. It absolutely yes. It's so I, alive. And you can see, but you can see that, that this would not be a good A side. It's almost too, too kind of hard, too, yes. too, too rocky a track. Um, it's, it's quite a step away from the style of, of, of song that they've been doing, particularly for, for singles. Um, and, you know, Paul has the A side with Can't Buy Me Love. So, you know, it seems reasonable that John brings along a B side. Overall, it seems to me that, you know, Hard Day's Night, the album, is a John album, would you say? It's, yes, I mean, it's very uh, Lennon heavy. I mean, I think he, he has seven hmm. vocal, lead vocals on this. George has one. Uh, there's two where it's uh, Paul and John, and then a couple, three by, by uh, three or four by Paul. So it, it's very Lennon heavy. Yeah. And, you know, You Can't Do That is, is one of those songs where you just feel Lennon's uh, personality coming through. And as you say, it, there is a filmed section uh, for You Can't yeah. Do That from the theatre performance in A Hard Day's Night. Um, but it was probably cut because Phil Collins was in the audience. And once again, the spectre of Phil Collins hovers over all just, of Yeah, you think he was playing bad percussion on the back of a seat in the, uh, in the <laughs> he audience. Should have, he should have leapt up to do the cowbell when you can't do that. He know? should have. He should have. He should have. Um, the cowbell bell is interesting because, because John talked about this being his Wilson Pickett um, style yeah. song, you know, back in, in, in 1980, he talks about this, but uh, um, I, I think it's Mark Lewis and makes the point that Wilson Pickett had not released any song like this by the time you can't, do that um comes out you know he, he Wilson Pickett was more known at that stage for sort of ballads this kind of R&B ballads and the songs that we think of uh you know in the midnight hour and and, and that's everything didn't come out until after this so um he's he's either misremembering or reconstructing something after the fact and this is one of those songs particularly when you look at it lyrically is is he kind of writing in this idiom of you know man woman kind of slightly soulish idiom or you know, you could you could also say you know there, there's potentially a, something autobiographical going on here. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that that starts creeping in around this time is this sort of lyrical sophistication of some of these songs. You know, we still have reference to diamond rings and and that type of thing, but uh, um, certainly this Paul in in many years from now does allude to this and says you know that might have been based on real experiences or arguments with Cynthia. Or whatever, and he said, "Oh, you know, we didn't really put that slant on it until later." Uh, George mentions this song as having been written in Miami. Okay. Um, so, you know, there's there's all of those things coming into play. Uh, is is he writing about his 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 jealousy? Is he writing about himself? I, it's it's certainly I think the lyrics become more sophisticated uh, around this time. And, you know, with 21st century eyes, you could argue that some of this jealousy is perhaps not uh, not very kind, misogynistic, maybe. It's a bit possessive, yeah. obsessive. 
Um, and, and if you are looking at it with a kind of, um, you know, is this, how personal is this lyric? You know, it does kind of shoot through to kind of jealous guy, I think almost is, is a kind of lyric that yes. flips back yes. on what you can't do that is about. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I suppose that's interesting to, to, to contrast his own self-awareness between you can't do that to the kind of more uh, self-aware yes. uh, lyric and jealous guy. Good point. Uh, good point. <laughs> Finally, I make a good point. <laughs> Fifty something episodes in. <laughs> um, you so, you all you always making good points. There you go. There you go. Scrounging for compliments. Here we go. Um, so they record five full takes, and um, you know Paul's playing the cowbell, Ringo's playing bongos, John's double tracking his vocals, but they also like. Uh, you know, successful young pop stars. They've got loads of them. Um, they've got loads of kind of new gear, don't they? Yeah. So this is this is um, you know, John has his Rickenbacker. George has got his twelve uh, string Rickenbacker. Uh, this is Ringo's onto his second uh, Ludwig drum kit. Uh, Paul's Hofner bass. Um, they use that on. I want to hold your hand. So Paul is is the only one that doesn't really have new toys to play with. Um, but this is a this is a change in sound um, and, and new equipment coming in at this stage. And, uh, you know, they I said four full takes, one of which uh, take six is heard on Anthology One. Now, I have to recall, you know, when I watched the first episode of Anthology One and that was used over the end credits, um, yeah. it really struck out because I hadn't really totally absorbed the Anthology One album at the time. And I was like, that's different. That's interesting. That's yes. a, a great take, that Anthology uh, take uh, six. And um, there's also uh, an unused George Martin piano overdub. Man, he loves nipping in and doing a bit of piano, doesn't he, George? Behind their backs. Yeah, the boys aren't here. I'm, I'm you know, I'm he's just going to slow that tape down. I'm going to throw a piano on top. He's he like goes. Jules Holland. You know, nothing can be improved by, <laughs> by a, a little bit, bit of piano. Of uh, um, um, you can, well, this, this, this has got to be a take that's going to come out. So when we get the the uh, Hard Days Night um, deluxe box set, oh, uh, we, we get we get this uh, we get this take. Um, so they do. Uh, so that is their B side. You can't do that. As we said, it was filmed uh, for Hard Day's Night. Um, they also briefly do us pass through it during the Get Back, Let It Be month of January '69. Yeah, they 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 touch on everything in January '69. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's a song. It's a song that they played live in the studio for the takes. You know, so they're pretty much recording the basic track here live. So uh, I, I suppose in in '69, this is something they can. Uh, th th they can go back to that. Uh, and it also pops up on the live The Hollywood Bowl slash eight days a week releases as well. There's versions, live versions of it there. Um, but February the 25th continues apace. The next song that they uh, that they put down is And I Love Her. This is the big one. This Here we go. This is the big song. <laughs> here we go. This is the big song. So Paul... This is, you know, so we touched, we said earlier that Paul is kind of figuring out how to write songs. And yeah. and I Love Her is essentially brought in as a solo Paul composition. And yes. for a guy who's figuring it out, he must have realized when he wrote this, he had figured something out. Yes. Um, this is, yes, because he, if you think about the songs that he's been writing, the songs that he writes on his own up to yeah. this point are kind of rock songs. They're, they're kind of, uh, you, you know, I Saw Her Standing There, Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, you, you'd mentioned All My Loving. That's a Paul song, mm -hmm. a solo song. But again, it's a kind of up-tempo, um, catchy, hook-laden, uh, you, you know, could easily have, been, easily have been a single. This is something different. This is really his first, I suppose, big ballad 
you know yeah. they've done they've done song ballads before uh till there was you but this is an original song uh this is his first i suppose big signature ballad you know this is this is what he becomes known for well that's the thing you know you think of paul mccartney i think romantic-y ballady type songs yeah. amongst other things he's also a farmer and that but he uh I, I kind of wonder about, you know, and I love her, you know, he, he brings it into the, the guys and, and the kind of the relationship songs they've written are very, um, you know, holding your hand, let's go out, you know, yeah. please, please me. They're, they're still, a, I, I think they're interesting relationship songs, you know, even though they're written from a, a male perspective, there's a lot of them that has a, you know, a, a, you know, a very uh, interesting uh, statement to make. But, and I love her, as you say, is, 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 essentially him trying to do a Till There Was You type song, a slow, sincere, very direct type of love song. And I, I wonder, did he have any kind of doubt in his mind when he's bringing this in to his three sarcastic mates yes, in Abbey Road? He, yeah, is he going to be? Well, it's, it, it's interesting that at, at the time he brings it in or their initial treatment of it is very different from the way it ends up. So perhaps yeah. that's the way of he's easing it in. You know, initially they're doing it with electric guitars. It's a it, you can't say that it's a rock, rocked up arrangement, but it's mm. not it doesn't have the delicacy or the 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 romanticism uh, isn't there when he brings it in. So maybe it just took him a while uh, to um, sidle up uh, to, to the to the full. Yeah, the you know, there's definitely a direct line from "And I Love Her" to "Yesterday," and yeah, you know, when he, uh, from what we know about the song, it's written in Jane Asher's parents' home in Wimpole Street in London in February of '64 uh, because they had uh, two days off between Paris and America. We think that's when he wrote it. So that's, what do you do? That's <laughs> that's not. I mean, like, that's absolutely whatever nuts. you do. Don't sleep for forty eight hours. Just write uh, no. uh, another song. We've, we've we've been yeah we've been in America. We're going to go to Paris and play this big string of dates. I'll I'll just write another song. That's uh... and there's some quotes from Paul here where he says, you know, I wrote it on my own. I can see Margaret Asher's upstairs drawing room. I can remember playing it there. Uh, the first it was the first ballad I impressed myself with. It's got nice chords in it. Bright are the stars that shine, dark as the sky. It was a love song really. The and in the title was an important thing. And I love her. It came right out of left field. You were right up to speed the minute you heard it. And I, I'm assuming when he describes it like that, that, uh, you know, it was just automatic writing, that it just sort of came out. And, you know, the thing that, you know, he, he, he will show again and again is recognising the good idea and keeping it. Yes. Yes. I, th I, think, that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, and again, it's this point, you compare this with the lyric to Can't Buy Me Love, where we're, we're still buying people diamond rings and things. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is this is a very grown up song. It's a much mm. more much more mature, and it is there is that kind of oh yes, and by the way, I I love her. You know, yeah. it's a kind of a side. It's 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 a very it's clever. clever. It's cleverly. Yeah. It's very cleverly done. Very cleverly done. But as you say, you know, when it rocks up into the studio, it's not exactly the way we we know it. And there is a you know very interesting early take on anthology again, yes. which is more guitar-y. It doesn't have the four-note refrain, which we'll come back to in a second. And it doesn't have the middle eight. It just has the repeating verses. And there's a, you know, this is another version of the studio is where things get knocked into shape because he doesn't arrive with that middle eight. No. Um, now, Paul will say in, in many years from now, he says, you know, I'm not sure if John worked on that at all. The middle eight is mine. I would say that he maybe helped with the middle eight, but he can't say it's mine. I wrote this on my own. So he's very adamant that, you know, 
there might have been some input, but he is he is the one that's doing this. But um, uh, it, 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 there are other witnesses to the event that, that would attest to the fact that John really was was pitching in with the middle eight. Well, Dick James tells a story, doesn't he, that they they're doing this early yes. version and there's kind of a realization that there's something missing. Yes, uh, Dick James is in the studio, uh, and um, it, it's interesting because he places himself right in the middle <laughs> of this. But he says he recounts uh, George Martin told the boys both Dick and. And I feel the song is just lacking in the middle. It's too repetitive and needs something to break it up. So it's it's so very Dick James's instructions. Very specific. Um, and then he says, I think it was John who shouted, okay, let's have a tea break. And John and Paul went to the piano. And while Mal Evans was getting the tea and sandwiches, they just uh, collaborated on the middle eight. So he, he's very clear that um, it's that all John because of and Paul Dick James. Were, it's, and it's all because of Dick James. That it oh, would have been a terrible song if he hadn't pointed out uh, that it needed some pepping up a bit. <laughs> well, yeah, Dick James, he he, he continues to, to give. But, um, you know, the middle eight is actually a middle four. It's only a four bar. So we're talking about the bit yes, because the love like yeah. ours uh, will never die. That is the bit that they add. And that, that does make the song uh, better. And then there's one other bit that makes the song better, wouldn't you say? There's a, I, I would I, I would say there's a bit that just ma- lifts the entire song. <laughs> and what bit are we talking about? That would be the little four note refrain. Um, so um, the four note refrain that opens the song, <clears throat> do 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 do, yeah. as we know. Um, was, it, was, it was like having Paul in the studio. There you go. But it wasn't Paul that. who did it in the studio, was it? It wasn't Paul. No, <laughs> it wasn't Paul. So yeah, this is this is the thing that. Um, uh, George comes up with this little riff. Mm. So, and, and Paul is quite open about this. I mean, he talks about this in the Scorsese documentary um, and he said, oh yeah, you know, Paul, uh, I came in with the song and George came up with the riff and he says, really, that's that's what makes the song. That's what you remember. That's the hook. Yeah. Um, so, of course, it, it became a McCartney Harrison song and George got half the royalties. That's and, not how uh, music works, Stephen. You're very, you're very naive. <laughs> That's the music business. John, oh, yeah, yeah, but John got half the royalties, did yeah. he? Oh, I see, yeah. But. Well, you know, his job was to, you know, arrange guitar parts for the... Um, you know, that's why, you know, Stuart Copeland in The Police, you know, he didn't write the guitar figure for um, uh, I'll Be Watching You, whatever that song was called, Every Every Step You Take. Um, I think we've talked about this before. That, that we, got did, sampled. we did, except, yeah. except, except when you talked about it before, it wasn't Stuart Copeland, it was Andy or, Sorry, Summers, Andy Summers, Stuart Copeland's the drummer. I am not a big police head. But yeah, Andy Summers plays guitar figure. It got sampled yeah. and Sting got all the royalties uh, from Puff yeah. Daddy. They had to have a, a, a discussion after that. Um, you know, but I think, you know, modern day songwriting royalties are maybe a lot more clear cut, which is why we've got hundreds of people on songwriting royalties uh, these days. Um, but yeah, Paul or uh, George does write that little riff, and you know this song comes together in the studio from having no middle eight, no introduction, no form. Yes, uh, you know it, it becomes a, a different uh, thing, and um, you know there's there's some overdubs and changes that happen later when you know Ringo puts on his percussion as well, which makes a difference. So everybody is starting to think Everybody's differently. Been, everybody, everybody's entitled to royalties here. Um, Yes, it's a collaborative effort. And as you say, it's back to this point that we're saying the studio is, uh, they're, they're using studio time, whereas before they would just kind of go in, knock out a couple of takes of the song, go back up the yeah. road uh, yeah. to do another concert. Here, they're actually working things out in the studio in a way that they haven't done before. 
But yeah, we talk about them using studio time, but yet they're still getting four songs done in a they're day. Still, yeah, it means very efficient use. It of is very efficient. Um, just to stick with um, and I love her. There's a couple of odd things. Obviously, it's it, Paul has played it live a lot over the years. Uh, it has been on many of his tours, and the Beatles themselves performed it live on their radio sessions and on the uh, variety show uh, Blackpool Night Out as well. And you've heard it live, haven't you? I've heard it live. The first I, I saw Paul McCartney in Dublin, and I was there with a couple of people. One of whom I I, I will not name, but uh, she was a big Paul McCartney fan back in the day, and that was her favourite song. And uh, I knew this was in the set list, and uh, <laughs> we were in, we were in the balcony, and we all but had to restrain her from jumping off the balcony <laughs> when this song. It was, it was really good. <laughs> it was really it was really quite uh, dramatic. The effect of this song. Uh, that this song had. Yeah. It's like, it's like um, that bloke in, but, um, what is it, uh, Good Evening New York City, the guy who's crying during uh, All My Love and Yes, just yes, standing, yes. So, yeah, it was exactly like that. It was just kind of this emotional thing. But um, can I also mention the kind of weird German version of this song? Yeah. There's lots of weird this, this German is, uh, edits that pop up from time to time. Yeah, this is, this is a, 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 this is a German album called Something New or the German version of the album Something New contains a stereo version with six guitar riffs at the end instead of four hmm. um, and I, the first I back in the day I had a, an Odeon label release of a Dutch greatest hits album and this was on it and it's incredibly disconcerting because you sort of assume the song is going to end you know the song well four is the logical number and yeah. then you just get these extra which must have been inserted it must be a special edit but i, I haven't been able to find uh anything anything out about that or why I, I, it was done I, i'm not a i'm not an expert by any means about all these kind of slight variants from around the world but there's also the the all my loving version with the hi-hat intro which is always a bit strange as well to hear yes yes um there, there's a guy on youtube called parlogram auctions who who breaks these things down very spectacularly and is uh if you really want to roll your sleeves up and uh you know if you think we're nerdy <laughs> yeah, uh, but he's got he's got a fantastic amount of information. He does go into all these different German pressings. February the twenty fifth, you know, as we said, George's birthday, and he's already given Paul the gift of that uh, four note guitar rift on his birthday. There's still more work to be done. Uh, there's one more song, which is uh, again another not at all bad song, which is I yeah. should have known better. Yeah, um, and this we think is you know when they're in Paris. Uh, you know, the previous month, they're listening to Bob Dylan. And this might be the first song that's touched by the uh, the vibes the of Dylan. Of yeah. The hand of Bob. Yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that, that's absolutely right. Um, so John talked very openly at the time about the fact that uh, this is what they were listening to. He, is a, he said, uh, you know, I, was he making a joke when he said we all went potty on Dylan, was that a pot reference there? I don't or is think that just so. A, I think it's just, no, I'm, I'm yeah. projecting. I'm yes. projecting. Um, but yes, they were clearly on the, and, and, you know, Lennon perhaps more than most, although George is the biggest fan, perhaps uh, um, John, you, you know, gets out his harmonica again and uh, adopts a more folk style of harmonica playing. Um, he gets his little Dylan cap out and uh, starts writing lyrics, which are, more autobiographical. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the thing I, I would say about I Should Have Known Better is the, you know, it is, you know, the harmonica is broken out. And in 1963, the harmonica is a certain type of Beatles sound. And it doesn't yes. sound that way on I Should Have Known Better. It's a it's a different type of harmonica. It definitely feels more dylan -y. It is. I mean, uh, you know, that we, 
the, the touched on this in the From Me to You episode where the harmonica is the consistent uh, kind of signature sound from Love Me Do and uh, Please Please Me album and uh, From Me to You. But those are, those are sort of blues-based style. Uh, we talked about Delbert McClinton and, and, and uh, the Bruce Chanel Mm. Uh, cover that John was was sort of uh, 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 hey baby and it, that's the sound of bluesy style this is a more kind of folk style a more kind of wheezy yeah. folk style um, so yeah it, it's it's not an attempt to return to that early harmonica sound or or to carry that that theme through and it's a song that takes uh, a lot of work and a lot of takes. So, you know, it, it doesn't get finished on February the 25th. So they're back in studio the next day, which happens to be February the 26th. And uh, there's some mixing going on in the early uh, part of the day. Um, but then the second half of the day, they are working on these kind of refined remakes of I Should Have Known Better and and I Love Her to try and get them down uh, yeah. pat. Uh, and so that's what day two in the studio spent um trying to get to final versions of those. I Should Have Known Better has this very, um, you know, I, I think it's a, 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 an interesting, you know, very well-known Beatles song. Um, it, uh, to me, you know, my first Beatles tape that landed in my Walkman was Real Music, the classic 1982 compilation. And it plays a, it plays Everybody a big role. Everybody should start there. <laughs> <laughs> I think start with Real Music and then work forwards yeah. and backwards, depending on which songs yeah. you like. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I Should Have Known Better is uh, is on that compilation and it's quite prominent in the top 10 smash Beatles movie medley or whatever it was, a top 10 yeah. smash uh, yeah. of, of roughly the same time. So it kind of gets a, a second lease of life uh, in the early 80s. Um, but we, there's, a, there's a ton of different edits, mixes, it's, versions. It, it, it's, it sounds, there is an edit once you hear it in the song, you can't unhear it. Um, yes, yes. But, uh, and uh, I, do, I, I, do, I do wonder if the, the, this happens quite a lot mm. uh, with the songs that are being recorded for A Hard Day's Night. And part of the, part of the problem is um, they're recording for a UK album. They're recording for a, a United Artists soundtrack album they know that capital will be putting out uh, a record as well will, that will come after the soundtrack album um they're under pressure they have to go off filming so there, there seem to be a number of little kind of glitches in, in in the mixes and things like that that george martin has to go back in and fix so we, we mentioned the uh, uh the, the the drum uh edit on yeah. camp by me love here there's a little gap in the harmonica playing that um, George Martin goes in and fixes yes. um, by by sort of oh, by as you said snipping a little bit out and pulling it back and, and and plugging a gap and what seems to happen we'll sort of not go through all the detail but what seems to happen is they do a mono mix like that then they come back to do the stereo mix and they forget about that so they they forget that there's a gap so then you get the stereo version has this little gap, the mono mix doesn't, uh, then it, one one goes off to America, then they do fold-down mixes, and yeah. you end up with, with lots of different uh, different versions. Um, then you get onto the film itself, where they start using different versions again, um, and there's a kind of mix and match uh, a, a approach. So it's, it's lots of these little glitches turn up, but of course now in the 21st century we have Giles Martin comes <laughs> in and just smooths smooths everything out and uh, gets, rid of, gets 
everything has to be this nice homogenous. Uh, there's only one version of every song. That's that's the mantra now. You say that uh, you say that uh, like uh, like it's a bad thing. Um, it is a bad thing. It is a bad thing. <laughs> um, it does get a it does get a live uh, performance on the British tour in late '64. It gets some uh, BBC appearances as well. It gets some television appearances. But it's a uh, you know a lot of these songs do get lots of live versions. Not all of them, but almost all of them have a, have a get get trotted out live. If not yeah. on tour, but on free, performances. Free. Yeah, so frequently what happens is is that they do one or two live performances on TV or on BBC radio, and then that's it. And yeah. some of them stick, like Can't Buy Me Love, it's stick. But uh, I Should I should Have Known Better is is one of those songs that um, I think it works really well in the film. Um, but can I say it's a song I don't really <clears throat> love? Well, Am I allowed know, to say that? Having, <laughs> to say that? They're having great fun in the railway carriage. They're playing cards. George yes, is meeting yeah, Patty. That's what that's what I'm saying. It works. It works really well in the film, but I I don't know whether it's the harmonica or whether it's the kind of slightly faux Dylan yeah. sign to it. Um, it it doesn't have very Beatles sign to it. Maybe that's it. I don't know. There's always something. It's not my favorite song in this album. That's that's okay. That's allowed. Um, so we're still looking at this block of recording time. They uh, you know after February 26th, February 27th, their third day in a row in the studio. They do a bit more work on And I Love Her. And then the next track is Tell Me Why, a totally John composition, very straightforward, jaunty. I like this song. Okay. No? Yeah, it's no, better I than like I, it. I should I have known. I shouldn't, but yeah. I wouldn't put it on, but um, I should have known better, but uh, no. Uh, no. Okay. Wow. It's, it's, it, that, it is it's it is. So, that's, that's why we work so well together. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, this is entirely a... a John song and in again in 1980 where he was going through all the songs he he said uh, oh they the film people needed another upbeat song and I just knocked it off it was like a black girl group New York kind of song so this seems to suggest that that in a, in in the US when they're yeah. busy trying to conquer America there's somebody on the phone saying we need more we need more songs um, and I think we can kind of identify I should have known better tell me why and I'm happy just to dance with you as maybe the songs that are written in New York okay um, uh, and so tell me why is um, you know as we say an upbeat song that uh, you know they, they're really trying to they're now about five days away from uh, not even five days away three days away from starting filming so they need to know what it is that they are uh, going to be putting into the um, into the film so they go through about eight takes on the day and it's take eight that is the, the one that they keep and they get most of the song done before lunchtime on February 22nd. Yeah, because they're because what they're doing here is they're just playing live, they're singing live um, to get the basic uh, track down and then there seem to be a, a vocal uh, overdubs and again, George Martin and his magic piano are back. He's just, uh, in he goes. In he goes, in he goes. <laughs> do, do you know what this needs, boys? Fuck George. <laughs> a bit of piano. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, and it's actually, having said everything gets a live turn, the only time this really gets a live turn is when they're recording it for the movie. It doesn't actually yeah. get into any live set they, 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 they kind of mime it uh, for, for uh, and again, in front of Phil Collins. So he's... Uh. The, the, the gift that keeps on giving so that's the, they go for their lunch and then there's one more song to do in the post-lunch session which is a song uh, that I very much like um, but I don't think its author likes it a lot which is If I Fell 
Yes, he seems to have a, this is one of those songs that John seems to be very ambivalent about, um, where he says, you know, there's uh, two, two, two sort of modes of writing, the one where I just kind of knock something off and the other one that has a sort of more depth to it. And he seems to regard this as just being a, a, a bit of kind of hack work or just mm. something, yeah, just a song, nothing, nothing much to it. But he does say... Um, that in 1980, he said, this is my first attempt at a ballad proper. It was a precursor to In My Life. It shows that I wrote sentimental love ballads, silly love songs way back okay. then. Um, so it, again, he, he's kind of almost get a sense he's maybe slightly embarrassed by it or yeah. something. It, it's We should point peculiar. out that, that that silly love songs aside was Lennon's, not yours. Um, that Lennon was using the yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, 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 yes. Sorry, uh, I wasn't. Sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't claiming authorship. Of that. <laughs> um, yeah, no. He says, like, when he's in his, his the depth of his uh, uh, cynicism, maybe in 1971, I'd, I'd have a separate songwriting John Lennon who wrote songs for that sort of meat market, and I don't consider them the lyrics or anything to have any depth at all. But you know, you know, if you're watching this very tight timeline, you know, Paul has brought in. And I love her. And, yeah. you know, I'm not saying If I Fell is a slower, acoustic, direct love song as well. So it, it's that odd Lennon-McCartney balance that this is, uh, this, is, um, this is what he is bringing as a love song at the time, you know? Uh, and even yeah, Paul again, acknowledges uh, that. Yes, I was going to say, Paul talks about this in many years from now. He said, you know, he did have a warm side to him. He didn't like to show it in case he got rejected. And it's back to this point that you were saying about uh, you know, and I love her. Um, you know, was Paul embarrassed to bring that in? You you have a sense that, that uh, you know, he was probably more open or more prepared to bring that in and maybe the embarrassment is going to be more with John because that's not what people expect of him. Yeah. Um, but if you actually look at these, if you look at the lyrics of this song, it's it's sort of, you know, I'm I'm, I'm about to give up one person and, start a new relationship with somebody else and what would happen if, if, if that happened. And it's a peculiar, the psychology of this, I know you don't want to get kind of too much um, <laughs> wrapped up in the psychology of these things, but it's, it's a peculiar dynamic in the song, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's not maybe as clear cut as, as, as you might think. Um, so they're recording this in the afternoon. Uh, take 15 ends up being the one that they use. And a nice note is that, uh, you know, the thing I like about the song is the the harmonies within the song. Yes. And, you know, yes. John and Paul are apparently on the one microphone doing harmonies in Abbey Road when this is going down. Yeah. So, so that's, a, that's a nice, it's a, it's a nice image. And it's, it's that, they, that they felt, that again, that kind of eyeball to eyeball following each other uh, in, in, in doing that. Um, and people do remark, people do remark on the harmonies, but there's a kind of, tale to be told there as well um, yes now i fix fix in the mix because i'm a you know a cigar smoking martian child i you know this song yes. sounds perfect to me i don't notice any mistakes or issues no if i fell no. Stephen. but you're going to correct me well when i was growing up um but <laughs> in, before, the before, century. In, in the day in the 20th century before we'd reached mars um yeah the version that i i grew up with um it's a very noticeable cracking in paul's harmony he kind of goes for a note and he just doesn't doesn't get it on the word vain you know be in vain and he just his voice just completely just misses it entirely um and that that was in the mix that that i heard and again we're back to this point um 
that they they uh, fix it um, in the mix. Um, so it was in the original the mono, stereo mix the that we have this cracked yeah, yeah. George or Paul voice, not yeah, in the so original mono mix. Not in the original mono mix. So what I was growing up with were the stereo versions in the kind of early 70s pressings mm. of these albums. Um, so they fixed it in the mono mix. But then when they came uh, to, to do the stereo mix, they forgot, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. for, some, for some reason, um, they, they, they didn't do this. And um, they also, there's a difference between the mono and the stereo mix in that John's voice is... is double tracked uh, all the way through in the stereo mix, whereas it, right. it's not double tracked at the start of the mono mix. So again, you've got these little variations um, creeping in. So they've taken away, yeah, from the 2009 stereo remixes, you don't get Paul's cracked voice anymore. On no, no, again, they've smoothed everything out and everything is uh, officially well, perfect in Be well, Beatle world. But I may maybe when, we, when we're buying the Hard Day's Night Super Deluxe box set, it'll be like, hey, Here's the original, really, slightly crappy I, I Well, it's, it's just, I really hope, I really hope they, they do restore that. Uh, you know, it was, it was an officially released version, so why, why, why should they uh, erase it from history? It's yeah. cancel culture. Um, th that song, I think, is all about the harmony. Yeah, they say, this was our close harmony period. We did a few songs. This Boy, If I Fell, Yes It Is, in the same vein, which were kind of like the foremost. There they are getting mentioned again. Uh, an English vocal group, but not really. Uh, yes. Not really. Um, they, they're they're a, a, a Liverpool group, um, but the song that I discovered recently is called Rosetta, okay, which is that. from 1968. And Paul actually, Paul, Paul actually went in and played piano on it. And if you if you listen to it, it's it's so Paul. It, really, it, it vocally it's vocally it sounds like Paul. The piano sounds like Paul, and it's somewhere between Honey Pie and uh, You Give Me the Answer. You know, it's one of those songs. It's a okay. lovely little song, and 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 it could easily have been written by Paul and sung by Paul. I'll check that result. So I, I recommend foremost. you. I recommend you check that out. Yeah, there's a yeah. There's there's a couple of things that if I fell remind me of like a, a while back I was. Um, uh, watching a hard day's night because it was on the television, so you just you know you just have to leave it on. It pops up on yeah. BBC Four every now and then, and the if I fell section came on, and um, you know my, my good lady wife, who perhaps is a little bit tired of the Beatles, uh, was watching this, <laughs> going, "Oh my goodness, they're uh, they were rather good." You know that uh, that kind of section where the the harmonies kick in and Lennon's kind of sauntering yeah. around with his guitar and. Uh, you know, they're, they're tripping over things and it's all a bit, uh, a bit, you know, Lennon's pulling faces in the background if you look closely. Yeah. Uh, it is wonderful. And there is a, a great version out there, uh, which we mentioned when we had uh, Robin Hitchcock on the show, which is, uh, you can find it on YouTube, thank God for people filming with cameras at gigs, which is Robin Hitchcock, Nicolo and Elvis Costello doing If I Fell. And you kind of get to see them working on their version of the harmonies, which is nice. Um but uh, yeah, and it, it, it isn't one of these songs that gets live takes. So it's it's performed on television again, Blackpool Night Out. It's uh, you know played at the Hollywood Bowl. It's played on BBC sessions, um, but it doesn't make it in set lists past 1964. Sure, doesn't. No, I mean I think it, it, it surprises me that they did it live um, yeah. because you think that must be a very difficult thing to to reproduce. Um, you know, particularly over the sound of the jet engine screams, but um, yeah. to try and get those harmonies right. Yeah, there is actually, there is a, they do take a pass at 65 at the Hollywood Bowl, so it doesn't, uh, 
it doesn't totally disappear until 65. Um, so that's uh, If I Fell, and that's the last song that they get down on February the 27th. They're not back into the studio till two days later on March 1st. But they don't have a day off on February the 28th. They're doing a BBC session because you just don't stop working when you're just in the Beatles. Stop. But it's as good as a break. And that's where we might take a break at the end of episode one of our two-part look at A Hard Day's Night. Um, it's... Uh, it's a busy, dense period of work. What do you think, folks? Is it one of your favourite albums? Um, do you like I Should Have Known Better? I know I do. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot going on and there's still more to, to go on, isn't there, Stephen? There is, there is. More, more next week. And more next week. So, um, so yes, so thank you for listening. Go back and have a listen to Hard Day's Night uh, while, uh, between our two parts of our episode here and get in touch with us in the usual places. Uh, we've got uh, our Twitter at Beatles Pod. We've got our Nothing Is Real Facebook group. The big net for all of these things is our uh, website, nothingisrealpod.com, and you'll get all our playlists and ways to get in touch with us and information about past episodes uh, there. Uh, but for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.